You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, I get the joy of sharing the good news with you this morning. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Acts chapter 8. Verses 26 through 40. This Easter morning, we're going to do what, every do what we do every week at RCC. We open up the Bible, read it verse by verse, and celebrate the resurrection. You ready to do this with me? Let's go. So we're going to be in Acts 8 and then jump to Isaiah 52. Um, and in Acts 8, the text that was just read, we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. I'm not going to explain to you what a eunuch is. If you have questions about that, you can ask Pastor Wilson. He's right there after the service. <laughs> He actually has some charts he'd love to show you, uh, <laughs> probably too far, but anyway, uh, <laughs> this Ethiopian eunuch is sitting in Acts 8 in a chariot, which is like the private jet of the first century. It's the Gulf Stream of the first century. So I'm imagining this, this black guy, I'm like really successful, really wealthy, just uh, pick your successful black guy that you got in mind, I got Jay-Z in mind, maybe Kanye West. This is a media mogul. This is a guy doing well in life. And he's waiting on his airstrip, in a sense. And he's not a Christian. He's been to Jerusalem, this Ethiopian. He's worshipped God. But as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't know Jesus. And he has this copy of this Old Testament scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he's reading it. Isaiah is a book that was written 750 years before the birth of Jesus. And it talks about Jesus. And so this Ethiopian who's never been to church and new to everything religion-wise, he's reading Isaiah and he's like, what in the world is this saying? And Philip is led by God into the desert to explain it to him. And so uh, this story turns on three particular questions. The first question is Philip asking the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, no, I have no idea what the Bible is saying. And then second question, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Verse 31, and I just want to pause there and I say, I hope that encourages you this morning. Maybe you're new to church, maybe you don't know what the gospel is, maybe you haven't been to a gathering like this in a decade, and you read the Bible and you're like, I have no idea what this is saying. This makes no sense to me. Well, can I encourage you this morning? There are people in the Bible who didn't understand the Bible, and that's why God provides Phillips to guide us, to teach us. And so if you don't know anything about Christianity this morning, you don't know what the gospel is, God is excited you're here this morning because you're exactly the kind of person he wants to talk to and he wants to change your life just like he did with this man here. And the third question that's asked after he says, how am I supposed to understand is the Ethiopian asking, who is Isaiah speaking about? Is he talking about a country, a nation? Is he talking about himself? And Philip tells him the answer. And this is the answer you need this morning. Because this is the answer, this is the key to the whole Bible. Isaiah is writing about the Christ. And beginning from Isaiah, end of Isaiah 52 and into 53, Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus, talks about the gospel of this Messiah, which is the good news of Easter that we're celebrating this morning. And so what I want to do this morning is a little bit different. We're not going to go verse by verse through Acts. Instead, we're going to go verse by verse through Isaiah 52 and 3, which is the actual text that this Ethiopian read that changed his life. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We are pumped you're here. 
Maybe you're like this eunuch. I hope not in all ways, but in some ways. My hope is that by the end of this message, you would at least understand the main theme of the Bible. You would at least be able to explain it, if not believe it. And if you're a Christian, I pray, man, you would rejoice. Because Easter means good news for you. And Isaiah tells us why. And as we prepare to jump into Isaiah, I think the big question we need to ask and answer is, what is this big book all about? There's so much hoopla around this thing, isn't there? Here's the message of the Bible in one sentence. God has acted to redeem fallen humanity through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. God has acted to redeem fallen humanity through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Bible is a book of salvation. It's a book about redemption. It'd be a great name for a church, wouldn't it? The Bible doesn't answer every question under the sun. You may have read the Bible and be like, there's nothing here about raising toddlers or getting them to sleep at night. I would love if that was in the Bible, but that's not the point of the Bible. You're not going to find all the answers to your questions in this book. There's nothing in here explaining who really killed JFK. There's nothing in here that says, is Bigfoot real or not? No, he's not real. Stop it. It's this nonsense. There's nothing in here to tell you, is that song by Taylor Swift really about Jake Gyllenhaal or some other guy? If you're above 40, just Google it. You have no idea what I'm talking about. That's not the purpose of the author. You don't critique an author for not making a thesis he's not trying to make. What is the purpose of the Bible? The purpose is to tell you about God redeeming fallen humanity through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And as you read the Bible, page by page, and move towards the New Testament, here's one of the main lesser themes under the big theme. It is, people are unfaithful. Maybe you've experienced that recently. Someone's been unfaithful to you. Someone's let you down. Someone's hurt you. The Bible says, yep, over and over again it happens. Every story in the Old Testament is like the Peanuts cartoon. You know, Lucy pulling the football from Charlie Brown? Maybe this guy will be good. Nope, he stinks too, and you land on your butt. All of them are screw-ups. All of them are a lot like us, aren't they? Until you find this one man, this Messiah, who is faithful. He does what we could not do. He perfectly fulfills the law of God. He lives a life without any sin, without ever being unfaithful to anybody. And what I need you to hear this morning is that the Bible isn't ultimately a book of rules that you need to follow or examples on how you should live. The Bible is a mirror that shows us how far we are from the holiness of God, except for that one guy that we keep reading about. And as Jesus lives the perfect life we should have lived and dies the death we deserved, he then rises from the dead as proof that it really is finished. All who throw themselves only on his grace are made completely righteous before the Father by what he did, not what you did. Even your faith was his gift. And so from this one man, all the peoples of the earth are blessed. And that blessing centers on the cross. The whole Bible pivots on one weekend outside of Jerusalem. And that's the weekend we're celebrating this morning. And Isaiah 53, this text that this Ethiopian, Jay-Z, is reading, 
is a song. It's a song about the cross. 750 years before it happens. It's a song about Easter before Easter happens. It's a song about this glorious weekend that we're here to celebrate. It tells us the story of this lamb. You know the Bible's a story about a lamb? In Genesis 22, Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac's question is, where's the, the lamb, dad? Where's the sacrifice? We got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb? And before Abraham can lay a finger on his son, God provides a substitutionary lamb. Book of Exodus, it's the Passover lamb and its blood that covers the people from the angel of death. Book of Leviticus, it's on the day of atonement in which all the people's guilt and sin is transferred from the people onto a sacrifice who is then this scapegoat, which is really where we get the word scapegoat, is released into the wilderness, symbolizing God's forgiveness of their sins. This lamb story unfolds page after page until you reach Isaiah 53, where we meet this lamb. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and John the Baptist, what's the first thing John the Baptist says to Jesus? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus does what no animal could do. And then as a result, at the very end of the Bible in Revelation, all the earth falls at the feet of Jesus saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. From Genesis to Revelation, we anticipate this lamb. And it's from this chapter in Isaiah 53 that this Ethiopian eunuch is taught by Philip about this lamb. This Jesus who is the center of gravity in the storyline of redemption. The atonement of Jesus is the central theme in God's book. Now, this might have been the message you heard as a kid. Or maybe if you've been to church a few times, you might have heard this message in church. Many churches, this is their central message. Something like this. Don't have sex and go invite a friend. And then as you leave, drop some money in the bucket. And can I just say to you, that is not the central message of the Bible. Don't have sex and invite a friend. Sound good? Let's go, team. Uh, man, no one's coming to church anymore. I wonder why. No, the Bible's central message, of course it will affect how you view sex. Of course it will make you want to invite your friends, but it's not the central message. The atonement of Jesus is the theme that holds the Bible together. And here's Isaiah writing about it to us 750 years before it happens. You know, this chapter in Isaiah is alluded to some 85 times in the New Testament. That's how important they considered this chapter in Isaiah. And the point of the song is really the point of the whole Bible, the substitution of Jesus on your behalf. It's at the heart of the song, it's at the heart of the Bible, and it's at the heart of our faith. And so I'm going to walk through this song with you, and you're going to see five things about Jesus that I think will make you worship him. Let's have a look. The first thing we see is the exaltation of Jesus at the end of Isaiah 52, at the start of this song. And look at these, these first verses. And as you read these first verses, you'll see that you and I should not pity Jesus. We should worship him. Isaiah begins, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. The Messiah, when he comes, he'll act wisely. And what the heck does that mean? Well, it, in fact, other places it's translated as my servant shall prosper. My servant will prosper. He will succeed. Succeed in what? In the work of atonement. 
You see, Isaiah is saying the Messiah, Jesus, is the Michael Jordan of atonement. He is the Michael Jordan of substituting your sin for his righteousness. The Hebrew writers would often put together wisdom and success, and that's why there's some ambiguity around this verse. But the point is simply this. Jesus will complete his work. Before a word is mentioned about the sufferings of Jesus, Isaiah wants them to know that this plan cannot fail. Jesus will succeed in his mission. It's a done deal. It's like Babe Ruth calling the shot. Home run over center field fence. Jesus, 750 years, is saying, I'm coming and I'm going to die for your sins. Now, if you're playing poker and you have a royal flush, you can relax, right? Now, I know none of you have ever played poker. But if you happen to have ever played, if you have a royal flush, that's the best hand, isn't it? You can chill because there's literally no way you can lose. And in the gospel, Isaiah is saying, the Messiah gives you a royal flush. You can relax. You're holding on to a life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And it's royal. You're good. Now, it's hard to keep a poker face with a hand that good, isn't it? It's hard to just sit there as if you're not holding a winning hand. As if our greatest problem hasn't already been solved. But that's why we smile. That's why Michael's so happy. We up here reading the scripture. We won. We got the best hand. He will succeed, Isaiah tells us. And because of that next phrase, Jesus the Messiah shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So before we even get to the cross, Isaiah wants us to first see that the Messiah will be exalted. The resurrection is mentioned first before we get to the cross. Why? Because God wants us to know, first off, because I know sometimes it looks like Christians aren't winning. And oftentimes in Jesus' life, it looked like he was losing. But Isaiah wants us to see, no matter what you see, no matter how it feels right now, you win because he wins. Before we get there, though, we, we, before we get to the ultimate exaltation, we need to see the cross work of Christ. And that's where Isaiah transitions in verse 14. He says of the Messiah, as many were astonished at you, this could be translated, as many were horrified by you. Horrified? How would people be horrified or astonished at Jesus? His appearance, verse 14, was so marred beyond human semblance. This is speaking about the cross work of Jesus. Psalm 22 and other places allude that when you looked at Jesus on the cross, it was hard to even see a human being. He looked so marred, he would be so torn apart because the high priest had slapped him and the crowds had spat on him and the soldiers had whipped him to the brink of death and then Pilate crucified him and when they finished, they had dehumanized him. The people would even mock as he looked down on them and they would say up to him, look at this king of the Jews. <laughs> if you're really God, why don't you bring yourself down from the cross? And today you and I are saved because he, <laughs> he did not come down. Instead, he stayed up. Jesus was marred beyond human semblance. The one who was totally pure looked totally impure to make us completely pure. That's how the plan is going to work, Isaiah says. This one who will be exalted, verse 13, will be first so physically marred, you can't even tell he's a human being. That's how it starts. And then verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. That's a weird phrase. 
Now, that could be the right word, but if you have your Bible, you'll see a footnote right next to that verse that says, sometimes this is translated as startle. I think it's a better translation. Jesus will startle the nations. What does that mean? It means regardless of who you are, Jesus will eventually leave you in awe. Some of you have a holy awe right now. You could fall on your face and say, I can't believe the perfect one died for me when I was imperfect. You're just in awe of his grace. But Isaiah is also talking about those who will have a law, an awe later. He says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. You see, some people will have a dumbfounded awe of Jesus on the day of his return. Those who talk smack about Jesus their whole life, those who refuse to bend the knee to him, will one day, we're told in Revelation chapter 6, pray, God, throw the rocks on us because we don't want to have to face him in his glory. Some will have a current awe, just dumbfounded all his grace, and some will be startled later like the kings saying, we didn't think he was anything, but really he was the king. And so, as we think about the exaltation of Jesus and the awe that it inspires, here's my question for you, friend. What incites awe in you? What gets you out of your seat excited? What gives you astonishment and joy? Is it talk radio? Or a political election? Or technology? Or sports? Video games? Stocks? Isaiah is saying the Messiah should be central in our affections. He should leave us in awe. The cross of Jesus should leave us in speechless wonder. And then secondly, Isaiah then gets from the exaltation of Jesus to the rejection of Jesus. The one who is exalted will be rejected. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? He asks essentially, who believed Jesus' message when he was on the earth? And he This is a rhetorical question, obviously. He doesn't imagine a lot of hands going up in the air. Who has believed in Jesus? I don't see anyone. No one believed when he was on the earth. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a metaphor for God's salvation. I think it's a great picture of salvation. Good choice, Isaiah. God's arm. We got some guys in this church with some big arms. I'm trying to catch up. I got a lot of work to go. But he's essentially saying Jesus is God's bicep. Isaiah says, we preach this message about God offering everyone salvation through Christ and no one believed it. God offered up his bicep and we said, no, we rejected him. This is why Jesus had almost no one left on Good Friday. And why did they reject him? Three reasons Jesus was rejected that Isaiah mentions. First, Jesus had the wrong background. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. In other words, Jesus was like completely insignificant. Like a little twig you pick up and throw in the fire. If the Bible were the Mandalorian, Jesus would be baby Yoda. He doesn't look that significant. He doesn't look impressive. Why? Well, his background, he he was born in a stable, he grew up in Nazareth, he was a blue-collar son of a carpenter, he had a poor man's job. Yet Isaiah says in Isaiah 9 that he is the prince of peace and that of his kingdom there will be no end. And you're looking at this guy and you're like, really? 
Think of all the questions that were asked of Jesus when he was on the earth. They asked, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Mary's son? Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John 7, his own family, his own brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah. And Jesus goes to his own hometown to preach. And this isn't a reunion celebration. They try and throw him off a cliff. There's no book deals. They want to kill him. He's rejected by the people that should have loved him. The people that should have welcomed him. And then Pilate, this secular, horrible guy, is like, I find nothing wrong with this Jesus. Here's your king. Take him back. And the crowds, these Jewish folks all together who know this text say, no, kill him. Save the murderer Barabbas instead. He had the wrong background. Secondly, he had the wrong image. Verse 2, Isaiah says, the Messiah had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You know, we're often told in our culture that Image is everything, aren't we? There actually was an old commercial in the 90s with Andre Agassi, you know, the tennis player with the mullet. And he would be sitting there like, image is everything. (laughs) With his mullet, like, waving in the wind. That ought to be a lesson to all of us. (laughs) Mullets are cool today, but not so much tomorrow. (laughs) Image is not everything. There was nothing in the image of Jesus that made him attractive. In fact, the Bible says he was ugly. Think about that. The Son of God was ugly. Some of you can identify by God's grace. (laughs) I'm the first in line, okay? Jesus was not King Saul. You remember King Saul? This was the high school quarterback. This was a senior class president. You know, he had big triceps. Jesus had tiny triceps. Like You look at him, there's nothing there. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Be encouraged by this. You know, there are a lot of people who are faithful Christian examples that weren't very attractive. I don't think Mother Teresa is getting a contracting, modeling contract from Victoria's Secret. And I I think for many of us, we're average-looking, normal people. And so is the Savior. Be encouraged. Image is not everything. It's really not. And if you forget, just look at Andre Agassi's mullet and be reminded. (laughs) They look at Jesus and say, he's too humble, he's too meek, he's too gentle, he's too normal, he's too ordinary. Paul says, the Greeks look for wisdom, Jews look for miracles, we preach Christ crucified. Folly to some, the power of God to others. God has taken the wisdom of the world and he's turned it up on its head. And said, your salvation is in the one no one is looking at. And then he says, Jesus has the wrong personality. Verse 3, he was despised. Literally, this means that they lifted up their heads and pulled back and stuck their nose in the air. They scoffed at Jesus. He was despised. And then he was rejected by men. Verse 3, he is a man of sorrows. What does that mean, a man of sorrows? Does that mean Jesus was like Debbie Downer? No. In fact, Jesus was the life of the party. In the Gospels, he goes from house to house, meal to meal. The Pharisees called him a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus liked wine. Take that responsibly. But he did. He was a fun guy to be around. Why is he a man of sorrows? 
He's a man of sorrows because Jesus is perfectly holy and he has perfect knowledge. And he knows the ramifications of sin. He knows sin leads to sickness and death. And so he can look at his friend Lazarus' tomb and weep knowing sin caused my friend to die. You know, in fact, in that story, it says that Jesus was angry. Jesus, in other words, he walked on the earth sensitive to sin and its effects. And so he's wearing that. He's feeling that more than anyone ever did. It's sort of like the feeling you would have when you found out a child you knew was abused. Or a man you loved and cared about destroyed his life over pornography or alcohol. Or if you saw a friend die right in front of you, it's Jesus, he's, he's feeling that constantly. The text says that he's acquainted with grief. That word grief actually can mean disease. He's acquainted with disease, with sickness. If you have a disease or a chronic illness, you have a Savior who understands. Any problems that we have, that's what verse 3 is saying. We have a sympathetic Savior. He is our man of sorrows. You can pour out your sorrow to the man of sorrows. He understands sorrow. him. Now, my friend, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been rejected by someone that should have loved you? Is there any worse feeling in the world than that? Maybe you're a child who's been rejected by your parents. Maybe you're a parent who's been rejected by their child. Maybe you've been engaged and the person you love rejected you. Maybe you've been married and the person you love divorced you. Ever been rejected by someone that should have loved you? You have one here who can sympathize. These people should have loved him. They should have welcomed him. And yet they rejected him. The Bible is not immune to that feeling. Our Savior entered into human suffering. He knows what rejection is like. So look to him as you mourn. And then Isaiah gets to the heart of his song in Verse 4 of chapter 53, and he mentions that this Messiah will substitute himself for sinners. Here we read about the atonement. Atonement, you might have heard me say that a moment ago. That's a pretty big word. What does atonement mean? To put it simply, it means at one mint. Atonement at one mint. It's the bringing together of two separate parties. We call it reconciliation in the New Testament. How does Jesus bring at one mint? Why do we need atonement? Well, it's pretty clear in the verses, isn't it? Verses 4 through 6, Isaiah tells us about our human condition. This is a really accurate description of humanity. It says that he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This is implying that you and I are sick. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This, Isaiah says, is the nature of human beings. And it's not a very flattering picture, is it? But it's an accurate picture. We want to go our own way. We have violated God's law. And we've chosen sin, which leads to misery and death. If you ever had a group project in college, now you know why it was so hard. 
Because people are hard to work with, as it is. If you ever walked into a public gas station restroom, that is a sign of sin. <laughs> no one can tell me man is naturally good. Just look there. Man's aim is naturally bad, and so is his heart. And listen, you might be here this morning, and you might not be a Christian, and hearing me say, I don't know what that guy was upset about, but he's probably upset about something I said. You might be upset when, I hear, when you hear me say, man is naturally evil. But I'm, to be honest, you believe the same thing. You're just in denial. And I'll tell you why. When you came in here this morning, did you lock your car? You did. Well, I thought man was naturally good. You got a passcode on your phone. You got a password in your bank account. You do. I thought man was naturally good. You see, you don't believe man is naturally good. You just want to. Isaiah 53 tells us why it's so hard to work with people. Because we all go our own way. We all, like sheep, have wandered. And we give God the finger and go, go our own direction. Now, culture will say to us, that is a morbid view of humanity. It's exaggerated. And they will offer us solutions like, we just need more education. We just need more governmental programs. Okay, yeah, sure, that'll work. We need more psychological adjustment. We need more medicine. We need more equality. And all those things have their place and are valuable, but they do not deal with the fundamental problem of humanity. We need something else. We need someone else, and we have it. Just notice the pronouns that Isaiah mentions here. He says, Jesus has borne whose griefs? Ours carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's talking about you, friend. It's talking about me. That is called Substitution. Jesus got what you deserved and you get what he deserved to bring us at one minute with God. This whole theme is actually the climax of uh, the Avengers series. Remember the end of Avengers, Avengers Endgame? Iron Man, at the end of the movie, he dies to cover the, the brokenness of the earth. It's been three years. Don't give me that look. You had enough time watching. All right. But the whole thing, like, I was in a movie theater with, like, four grown men who were all weeping like little children. Like, guys, this is a comic book. <laughs> like, Iron Man died for the world. Oh, it's amazing. He snapped his fingers. <laughs> Isaiah 53 says, the God-man took on the world's sufferings so that you could live. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus has traded places with transgressors. He has traded places with those who have committed iniquity. He has traded places with those who are sick with sin. And he has taken it all himself. He is the sin bearer. And he's not just a sin bearer. He is a suffering sin bearer. The text points out the incredible severity of Jesus' sufferings. You know, even after his resurrection, Jesus still bears the mark of his sufferings. In Revelation, it says he is the lamb who was slain. You can tell he was slain in heaven. He still's got holes in his hand. Why? Because he is one who suffered for his people. His sufferings were severe, and they were also diverse. 
They included physical sufferings, mental sufferings, emotional sufferings. He was betrayed. He was forsaken. But internally, the suffering that Jesus took that was the most intense was the feeling of abandonment as he was removed from every presence of grace from the Father. He experienced literally hell instead of us. He experienced what everyone will experience who does not look to him for salvation. Removal from every expression of the Father's grace. But you don't have to face that. You can look to him. We've already died, we've already been judged, we've already been buried, and we will one day rise. He is our substitute. So be united to him, friends. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you believe in this atonement, it will change your life completely. What does the atonement bring practically for you? Well, Isaiah tells us, verse 5, it brings us perfect peace, perfect shalom, wholeness. I love that song, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's what the atonement brings, a burden taken off. Scotty Scheffler won the Masters last week. The Masters is like the Super Bowl of golf. It's the biggest golf tournament of the year. And in his press conference after he won, Scotty Scheffler said it was the peace of Christ that helped him win that tournament. How does the peace of Christ help you win a golf tournament, Scotty? Well, he said that as he was entering into Sunday, the last round, he had a three-shot lead. It's not a lot. And before his round, his wife pulled him aside and said, no matter what, Scotty, I love you. And no matter what, Scotty, God loves you. You can shoot 10 over today. You can blow this lead and go down as a laughing stock. But me and God will always love you the exact same amount. And he said, Scotty was like, you know what? That actually gave me a brand new peace on the golf course. A new chill. He said before he was a Christian, he would have wrecked himself with panic and nervousness. Because everything hangs on his performance. But now the gospel means I can suck at golf today and God still loves me. I can blow the masters and Jesus still atoned for me. I can relax. That's what the atonement means. I cannot perform. I can sin. I could have screwed up royally last night, but I have been united with Christ. And trying to get God to stop loving me is like trying to get something out of God's hand. Good luck with that. You see, every other religion in the world will tell you, you need to do these things for God to really love you. And then when you get to the judgment day, we'll see. Only in the gospel did Jesus say, there was one who was good for you. Receive it completely now. You're secure. So relax. The atonement brings peace. And then it also brings healing. Isaiah says, by his wounds we are healed. This is obviously not a physical healing in this life because Christians die just like all of us. We're all presently headed towards the grave. This means Jesus provides ultimate healing. You know, uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, I think he's like the third richest man in the world right now. It changes pretty frequently. Loser. <laughs> Get it together, Jeff. Come on. Can't let Elon do that to you. Anyway, uh, 
Jeff Bezos and Google's Larry Page, do you know they've invested a large amount of their fortunes into companies that are researching how to reverse the aging process? They don't want to die. They want to live forever. And Isaiah is like, hey, guys, I got an idea that might save you a couple billion. How about a resurrection? How about a resurrection? You know, there's no problem you're suffering through right now that a good resurrection can't fix. And Isaiah says, there is one who offers it to you. Like Stephen in Acts 7, we read a few weeks ago, when you die, you just sleep. You just take a nap and you wake up home in heaven. All who are in him will be raised, Isaiah says. Then we transition here into verse 6, and it shows us this different aspect of the atonement, namely the role of the Father in the atonement. You see, we've already seen sin in verse 4. We've already seen the substitution of Jesus in verse 5. But now we're introduced to a different concept in verse 6. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid the iniquity of the world on Jesus? The Lord. Here we see the triune God at work. The love of God. God's love is being poured out to us through the Son. The Father has laid upon him the blame. He is pointing the figure that was due us on another. The Lord laid it on him. So you see here the wickedness of sin in this text. You see the certainty of condemnation for those who do not look to Jesus as their only hope. But you also see here the greatness of God's love. That you as a guilty person are loved in the person of Christ. And that love is flowing to you. God loves you so much that he has laid on Christ your iniquity, and Jesus loves you so much that he was happy to bear your iniquity for you. Believe and lay your guilt on him, and he'll take all of it. Jesus could not bear all your guilt and survive, but he was willing to bear it anyway. That's good news. So I asked you a question previously. Have you ever been rejected by someone who should have loved you? These three verses pose a different question. Have you ever been loved by someone who should have rejected you? That's the gospel. He should have rejected us, guys. And what has he given us instead? His love, his life. Greater love does not exist. Greater news doesn't exist. God loves us not partially, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And he's displayed it at the cross. The servant's rejection continues in verses 7 through 9 as the main events of Good Friday then unfold. The first thing we're told about is the violent oppression of Jesus and how he endures it then in silent submission. Love is displayed in his silence. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, it's one thing to endure injustice. It's another thing to endure injustice and everyone's silent. No one even cares. That's what happened to this perfectly innocent man. Verse 9, it says he faces public humiliation, though he was innocent. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he's silently being oppressed. And they throw him in a public grave as humiliation. Now, verse 9 is, is a little mysterious because it says here that they, 
made his grave with the wicked. And that was actually what the plan was. He was going to be thrown into this mass grave. But Isaiah says, wait, wait, it's also with the rich man. How does that happen? Those are contradictory. Well, you might know the story that Joseph of Arimathea, he had a brand new unused grave. Pilate remarkably grants Joseph's request and gives the body of Jesus to Joseph. And he puts Jesus in a rich man's grave. And they seal the tomb. And it ain't sealed for very long, is it? And this would actually be one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. Because he ain't there. He's gone. Isaiah, in other words, is telling us that Jesus will suffer silently. And then he will be buried. And he's hinting he will raise again 750 years before it happens. And then last point, we see the glory, the vindication of this Jesus. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We see here, first of all, the primary cause of the atonement. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet Jews were responsible. Romans were responsible. Pontius Pilate was certainly responsible. Judas was responsible. We are responsible. It is our sin he bore on the cross. But ultimately, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the sovereign plan of God. It wasn't as if the father had some sadistic delight in this, but he did delight in the fact that this would bring about our redemption. It was the will of God. Jesus, in other words, was not coerced. He was a willing substitute, fulfilling the sovereign plan of God. And why was Jesus willing to go through this for us? What does he have to gain? You see it at the end of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see what? His offspring. You know what he's talking about there, right? He's talking about you. Jesus died to redeem a people for himself. And his people bring him joy. Jesus looks at you and has joy because you're his people. Revelation says that there is a number so large no one can count, and they are his offspring. And notice, Jesus doesn't just have an offspring. It says he shall see his offspring. He will see his gathered people redeemed. I kind of picture this grandpa at a family reunion, seeing all the little boys and girls running around, all the aunts and uncles and parents looking and saying, this is my offspring. These are my people. That's how Jesus looks at you this morning, Christian. You and I are offsprings of the cross. And he won't just see us, we will see him. Just as Stephen saw him right before he died. John tells us in 1 John 3 that we are his children. We were like sheep who wandered astray, but we've now been made his children, and we will see him as he is and be made like him. This is the visio day, the vision of God. It's this, this compelling motivation for the Christian. Jesus is going to see you as his offspring, and one day you get to see him, and you'll be made like him. John tells us at the end of the Bible what it might be like to see our risen Savior. John sees him, and it says, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus ain't a little twig anymore, is he? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John saw him, the disciples on the resurrection morning saw him, and we are told all who are in him will see him. 
the cross, the resurrection are tied together, Jesus will get what he paid for. The Father's exclamation point to the Son's, it is finished, is our resurrection and his. It's Friday, but we know Sunday is coming for all of us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of many to follow. That our resurrection is as secure as his resurrection. Paul says in the same chapter, Christ was raised according to the scriptures. What scriptures, Paul? The Old Testament. What Old Testament scriptures, Paul? How about Isaiah 53? This is the plan. He will see his offspring. Let's not let this get old, friends. This is the greatest news in the world. We're going to see him. Jesus has an offspring. Jesus has fulfilled the Father's plan. And notice verse 11, Jesus is satisfied. In other words, he doesn't regret his work. It was all worth it. The more important the project, the deeper the satisfaction, right? You ever finish a really long, years-long project and sit back and say, ah, that feels good to have that finished. Jesus started this before time began. And he sits in heaven now saying, ah, this was worth it. God is happy with the work of atonement. And then verse 12, last couple phrases here. That Jesus, through this atonement, not only gathers the people for himself, not only inaugurates a pattern of resurrection for us, but he will share the spoils of victory with his people. Verse 12 says, he's going to divide the spoil with the strong. It's actually battlefield language. It's what a king or an emperor would say to a general after a victory. Take what you want. I took my kids to the arcade last week. We got a bunch of tickets and we got a bunch of candy and cheap toys. And we took all this candy and toys and laid it out at the table and said, Sons, my spoils are yours. Jesus says the same to us. 750 years before it happens, Isaiah is seeing these resurrection spoils that we will share in. What kind of spoils? How about the presence of the Spirit of God inside you right now? How about the sweetness of fellowship with other brothers and sisters in the church? How about supernatural peace and healing that only come through the gospel? Resurrection spoils. And we haven't even tasted the best of them yet. These are hors d'oeuvres. Dinner's coming. For all of eternity, Jesus will have us at the table and say, Sons, daughters, the spoils of my resurrection victory are yours. And it all flows from this great weekend. And lastly, we see the end of verse 12, that Jesus reigns and intercedes for his people. He pours out his soul unto death. He's numbered with the transgressors, yet he takes the places of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. <clears throat> this is the picture Isaiah ends with. This is the picture that Jesus wants you to see this morning. That Jesus right now is at the Father's right hand interceding for you. He has always been interceding for you. God is holding more tightly to you than you are to him. When he was on earth, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have interceded for you. I have prayed for you. At the cross, as the people murder him, Jesus intercedes for them and says, Father, forgive them. And now Jesus is at the Father's right hand right now interceding on your behalf. And our coming to glory is only the result of his intercession. It has secured our acceptance before the Father. And we're told in Acts 8 that these were the things that Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Because in Isaiah 53, you get this true view of the Messiah. He was the one who was rejected, who should have been loved. He is the perfectly innocent one. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the reigning, interceding King. We get a true view of our sinful selves, and we get a true view of what Christianity is. God takes the crushing burden off of us, and he places it upon another. The gospel, friend, is not what would Jesus do. The gospel is what has Jesus already done. He is the Lamb of God that has been provided to substitute for us. And Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 is all about this Lamb for you. What he has done for you on behalf of you. And if you do not receive him, you will one day, like Cain, say, my punishment is greater than I can bear. But you can transfer all of your guilt, all of it, to another and find full atonement, perfect at one in this substitute. If you're an unbeliever this morning, look at the cross and hear Jesus say, I love guilty people. He should have rejected us, but instead he loved us. The question is, will you trade your guilt for his righteousness, or will you try and do it on your own? And in Acts 8, the last question that the Ethiopian asks is, what prevents me from being baptized? You kidding me? This Messiah substituted himself for me? I'm happy to declare that to everyone. What prevents me from being baptized? The answer, nothing. What's preventing you from being baptized? What's preventing you from believing in this gospel this morning? We'd love to talk to you about that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, well, I got some good news. It is finished. And the resurrection is God's receipt that it really was fully purchased. And so you know what you can do today? You know, every other religion in the world says, all right, get to work. You know what we say here at RCC? All right, go take a nap. Go have a great lunch. Why? Because he did the heavy lifting. He is our substitute. He is our lamb. He gets all the glory, doesn't he? And we celebrate that this Easter, and we celebrate every day thereafter. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room that has not united themselves through faith in you. I pray that they would see the glory of Jesus, this Messiah, that they would not reject him like his generation did, but receive him. And with it, receive full satisfaction, full substitutionary atonement, full righteousness before the Father. And I pray for the Christians in this room that we would see the heavenly realities that change everything for us. That we would celebrate and rejoice this morning knowing that it is finished. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us and we are secure forever. God's bicep got us. We turn to you, Jesus, and give you all the glory. In your name we pray, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.